All right, thank you for your patience while I get settled up here. Let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Well, God's blessings to each and every one of you as you study uh, at home or in your car, whatever the case may be. Um, and as we uh, once more delve into this wonderful book, Revelation, and uh, see in our mind's eye the wonderful revelation of, of God's Son, Jesus Christ, the very Lamb of God in glory, I think it is uh, 28 times the language of the Lamb of God shows up in Revelation, and how could it be any other? You have Christ is true God, and you have the number seven, and Christ is true man, the number four. Four times seven is 28, this Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, this Lamb of God who is at the center of God's throne. What we see here, too, in chapter five, or rather what we have seen, going back to previous classes, is really the convergence and the inability to separate, and you can make a distinction, but the inability to separate the convergence of these three things, text, reality, and liturgy. They're, they're all one. They're all one as the Lamb goes to the right hand of the Father, the one seated on the throne, and takes from his right hand, goes to his right hand, takes from his right hand the plan of salvation. That's what it means that Jesus ascends to the right hand. Um, the right hand, biblically, is wherever God is working salvation. Salvation is being worked definitively through Christ Jesus in a way that is true past, present, and future tense. And so the opening of that scroll is the opening of a text. The scroll has writing on it front and back. It is the opening of reality because that word that is on the scroll then bespeaks the future things to come. And this converges also with liturgy. What we see in this epistle is that the liturgy on earth is absorbed into the liturgy in heaven and that this action of taking the scroll and opening the scroll to preach and proclaim its contents, this is what Jesus is going to do. This is a liturgical action. You can remember how in Jesus, I think it's recorded in Luke's gospel, Jesus takes the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, opens it and reads it saying, this scripture is fulfilled in your presence. So there's, a, there's the liturgical use of the scroll and preaching. And this is precisely what the Lamb of God is going to do as he opens the seals. It's sealed with the seven seals of God. He's going to open that scroll and preach and proclaim the contents, again, in the liturgy of heaven and earth. So this textual event, this liturgical event, this playing out of reality, the future reality of the world. These three things can be considered in some ways distinct, and yet they can't be separated. They all converge as one. 
So that's what we've been seeing. Now, as they break out in, uh, as the Lamb takes the scroll and the, with the seven seals, um, that all of heaven breaks out in singing. And that's uh, in chapter 5, verse 9. And they sang a new song, which doesn't mean the, the latest, greatest hit, um, but it's a new song on account of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Remember, he's, he's a lamb standing before the throne as a priest stands before the throne. And yet in the appearance of a lamb, he's priest and sacrifice in this single image. He also stands as one having been slain. So there's the crucified Christ and yet risen, and yet he stands. There's a resurrected Christ. All of these things depicted in this one image of Christ standing before the throne. We talked again most beautifully, I guess, before we move on to the liturgy. I promise I'll get out of here sooner or later, but I just cannot help but marvel at how beautiful this is. We talked about, you know, if you were to see these things head on, you would see the, seven, the sevenfold flame, the seven lamps, the seven torches, and uh, that represents the Holy Spirit. And then behind that, you see the seven eyes, those flames right in front of the eyes. His eyes are a flaming fire. His eyes and those fires go out throughout the course of the earth. He knows it all. Where the Spirit goes, Christ goes. Where Christ goes, the Spirit goes. Seven horns, for he's all-powerful. And then as you look behind him, revealed in this lamb, slain for sinners, raised for our justification and our glorification forever and ever. Uh, the, the lamb becomes the way in which you see and comprehend the one on the throne who is too mysterious to, to grasp. Underneath him, the glassy sea. Around him, the angelic beings. The sphere around him, a rainbow. If we have the coloring right, the overwhelming color is green. New life, spring. With red very poignant red. You know, his, his fire that consumes the wicked, that purifies the godly, the blood that cleanses us from our sins, at the same time curses those who despise it. So we have this full theophany and this full trinity. And I, this is why I love Revelation, because Revelation doesn't sit you down and say, now here's the trinity, and let's describe it in logical or mathematical points. Let's come up with various analogies. Just beautiful revelations. This is what it is. You, you understand the Trinity best by seeing it. And that gives, us, uh, that gives us hope, a sure promise, and a reward that this is what it means to see God, to see him as he is, the beatific vision it's often called. To see God as he is, to know God as he is, to know him as we are known and see him as we ourselves are seen. This is the, probably the clearest, most beautiful glimpse into heaven given to us in the scriptures. You know, it's often quoted, I'll take us on a field trip for just a minute. I'm alone in a room here, so there's no audience to read, so you're just going to have to put up with me. Maybe I'll take us on a field trip. What is oft quoted to me, when outside of the context of Revelation, I teach the things of Revelation. Someone will, always, will without fail add in, eye has not seen, ear has not heard. Uh, thus, thus sort of 
functioning, not always intentionally, but functioning to undercut our knowledge of these things. I hope I'll be, I'll be able to find this now that I'm taking us on this uh, off-the-cuff field trip. And I have no one here to rely on to steer me straight if I get this wrong. Yeah, if you look at 1 Corinthians. So, this quotation, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. This quotation, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. This is the verse that's often quoted. Again, not off, I, I don't know that it's intentional. It's often quoted as like, careful, you don't, you don't think you know as much as you do. To which the response is, well, we know as much as Revelation tells us. We know as much as the scriptures show us. God cannot lie. He's not deceiving us. So we do actually know quite a bit more than is often granted. But I find, and I may be mistaken on this. I'm willing to entertain that for sure. But I, I found this interesting, that this verse, what no eye has seen or ear heard, that's so often quoted, comes from Isaiah. And it's taken up here in 1 Corinthians in precisely this way. Look at, look at chapter 2, verse 6 of 1 Corinthians. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Check out this next line. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. The Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person, which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And what things are those that are freely given us by What is written? What is written? So this quotation what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. And the Spirit precisely has revealed them in and through these things freely given to us by God. Thus you have verse 13. We impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. And that's precisely the interpretation of God's Word. Yeah, well, so that's my field trip. Been pondering those things a little bit. Um, as I've taught these things, and you te teach eschatological things, you teach things about death uh, that the scriptures reveal. I'm not talking about speculation. Death, judgment, the resurrection of the dead, the final judgment. 
the new heavens and the new earth, these, these kinds of things. Our data comes to us in and through Scripture. It's imparted by the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit, through these very Scriptures, gives, gives wisdom to those who are spiritual, which means Christians. It's not a special class of Christians. It means Christians who are willing and open to hear what the Spirit says and believe it. So there is, a, there is maybe a fair amount too much speculation in Christianity where people think they know a lot more than they do. That's a fair point. But there's also an equal overreaction to that point where there's this extreme skepticism and people want to assert as if we can't know anything. That too is an error. So we have this beautiful revelation of heaven and we needn't be skeptical in regard to it at all. Now, as I mentioned, in the liturgy, the, the, the heavenly congregation, and that's the beautiful thing, this family of God, which consists of men and angels, angels of all kinds and, well, men of all kinds too, small and great. Uh, in this case, though, you know, heavenly beings, unless, I mean, the 24, they may well be human, doesn't much matter. But they all sing this new song, new because of the work that Christ Jesus has done. Remember, he's missing from the throne room and then he comes. This is his victorious, uh, he has, he has uh, died, descended into hell victorious, rose from the grave and shown himself alive, victorious over death, victorious over Satan, victorious over our sins, sin, death, and the devil under his feet. And then he ascends into heaven. And at this ascension, he is coronated. And he's given the scroll. He's given to open the scroll, the seven seals. And thus, a, the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Now made manifest and known through the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. Who exegetes the law and the prophets. So that we properly understand what they mean in him then we properly understand what these very same scriptures speak of the end and speak of what's to come. So this, in this sense, then it becomes a new song. It's old and new. It's precisely the way Jesus describes a scribe who is well-discipled or well-trained. He, uh, he takes from the scriptures that which is new and that which is old. The same mystery is, is buried in that language of, of love and the commandment of love. An old commandment I give you, not an old commandment, but a new commandment. It's the same commandment to love. It's just so profoundly changed shape because of the death of resurrection of Jesus, and resurrection of Jesus because of the self-sacrifice of the Son of God, because the Father hands over on our behalf for us and for our salvation, his most precious treasure. And so love, while it is old, is in every way new. The scriptures which are old are in every way new. The song of heaven, which is of, from of old, is now in every way new. Because the lamb who was slain stands before the throne of God. And so they cry out to him, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you are slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, not just the Jews, that's the point here, and you have made them a kingdom 
So our true kingdom isn't the U.S., you know. This, by the way, paradoxically frees us to be true patriots, to want the best for our country, whatever country that may be, whether the United States or Mexico or Europe, someplace in Europe or someplace in Africa, it doesn't matter, China, whatever. We can be true patriots for our country, and we're true patriots by calling our countrymen and our country back to God, back to the rule of his law, back to his protection of his church, back to his ways. So we become true patriots in what we call the left-hand kingdom, the civil sphere, by recognizing that our real and everlasting kingdom, our eternal citizenship, is not here on earth, but rather in heaven. And through the reign of Jesus Christ, we become a kingdom. And then we become priests. Christ our Lord as our high priest and example, we as uh, priests under him to our God on behalf of the people of this world, offering intercessions on their behalf. You know, this is where the government, if our government had a clue what it was doing right now, like if it, if it wasn't so utterly spiritually blind and spiritually leprous, uh, filled with leprosy to where it can't even feel, and same with the people of our nation. I mean, the government just represents the people. They would be begging the church, begging the church to meet on Sundays. It would be the only thing considered absolutely essential. And they'd be begging Christians in specific to meet so that we might offer prayers of intercession on behalf of our nation, on behalf of the world. Because even if a cure comes from coronavirus, it's going to come from God. God's going to enable us to have that if it comes. And whether it comes or not, the prayers of the saints, the priests unto God, praying on behalf of all people, is the most powerful force. Uh, again, not that the powers of us are in us, but because God is powerful and he answers our prayer. But it's the most powerful force then in all the earth. No doubt this very, uh, this very language became part and parcel of the, of the worship of the early church. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. Remember, this is liturgical action. For you were slain in your blood. Um, remember, nobody else can do it. He can only do it because he's slain. So he, how, why so? It's the, it's the salvation of humanity. In order for human beings to be saved... There must be a human being who can make atonement for him. He must be true man. He must also be true God so that he can make atonement for all man. That's the only reason why the lamb is able and is worthy and no one else is, no, no perfect angel or anything else is able to uh, open the scroll that then spells out salvation. So then we have this promise, a kingdom and priest to our God and they shall reign on earth. And indeed, we, also, we, we do reign with him already in a very hidden way. We do judge with him already when we judge in accordance with his word. We reign with him already in the hidden way where he reigns as the one crucified. God's strength made perfect in his weakness. So too, we reign with him when we bear our crosses. God's strength made perfect in our weaknesses. It's just backwards, upside down. It's going to be reversed where the the mighty are cast down and the lowly are raised. But right now we reign with him precisely in lowliness. And in, in that lowliness is strength. First uh, Corinthians again here is profoundly helpful. All right, then I looked and heard around the throne the living creatures 
and the elders uh, and uh, the voice of many angels. So around the throne, you've got the living creatures, the elders, and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads, which I think is like 10,000 times 10,000. I mean, again, this isn't an exact number, but you're talking about like millions of angels here. Myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing which if you count, there's seven. So there's the sevenfold blessing to Christ. Intentional, liturgical, beautiful. Each one of those could be fleshed out, but I'm already moving too slow as it is. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. I mean, don't get bogged down in the details here, but this is what's being communicated is that all creation, all creation sings his praise. We don't have to get, we don't have to get into the nitty-gritty here of, well, what about, what about unbelievers or not? I mean, I, the study notes tries to address that. I just don't think, it's, I don't think it's really the point or necessary. Let me see what the study note says. Yes, depicts the fulfillment of the prophecy that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, Philippians 2.10. I don't know if that's true. I don't know if that's true. I think, I think more the realization is that because Christ is worthy to take up the scroll and has taken up the, the scroll, all creation, heaven and earth, rejoice. And I don't think we have to get any more specific than that. To him who sits on the throne, that's the Father, and to the Lamb, be blessing, and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Kind of a neat thing there that you have the sevenfold praise of heaven and the fourfold praise of earth, heaven and earth joining together. Blessing, honor, glory, might. Now, what about the Holy Spirit? You've got the one sitting on, sitting on the throne and the Lamb. We could, I guess we could accuse John of being too much of a, of a Lutheran here, um, only, only talking about the Father and the Son. Well, the Spirit's the very one driving the praise. So he's the very one at work in all the creatures to will and to do, giving glory to the Lamb and to the one who sits on the throne. The Holy Spirit's everywhere. He's just, we might say, the shy one of the Trinity. His, wherever, wherever Christ and the one seated on the throne, the Lamb and the one on the throne are proclaimed, there the Holy Spirit is doing the proclaiming. Verse 14, And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. So what do we see in terms of worship? I think formality might be the wrong word. Though, there, though, though it is more formal than what passes for casual here in the U.S., uh, but reverent, reverent, substantive, fitting. You have uh, song given up, unified song, worship of the Lamb. You have prostrations, you have bowing. We've seen briefly you have, uh, I think we've seen this, you have hints towards incense. If we, don't all, if we haven't seen it, we will soon enough. 
So a shape, a shape of heavenly worship ought to take form in our mind. And of course, as we look back on the Old Testament tabernacle, we know that that is a, a type of the heavenly tabernacle and, and a type of the heavenly worship. So these are our guides, and they ought to be informative then for how it is that we ourselves worship as Christians and plan to worship for all eternity. All right, well, on to the action. On to the action. Chapter 6. Now I watched, this is John speaking, when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. A very important thing to keep in mind that maybe I haven't said since the first couple of sessions. This text was written to be understood by first century Christians. I mean, these events that transpired are, are more mysterious to us than they were to them. In short order, the people saw the fulfillment of these things. It's good to remind ourselves of that. And yes, these prophecies can point to uh, you know, things that we might experience, say, if we're at the true end end of the world, you know, uh, the final days of, of this age. These prophecies may, may speak to some of that that we see, but we ought not look for a one-to-one -one correlation. What we're going to see is the four horsemen. We're not, you know, it would be absolutely foolish to say, well, there's the third. Now we're waiting for the fourth. I mean, first of all, all these horsemen came and were present. And if you want to extend it, and, and are recognized as such by the first century Christians who received this letter. You know, John wasn't writing, thinking to himself, well, maybe some, nobody's going to understand this now, but maybe some Christians will 2,000 years from now. Maybe they'll figure it out. I mean, if the Christians of the first century and the next centuries following didn't understand this text, didn't see it revealed truly and actually in that generation, it wouldn't have been kept. It wouldn't have been retained. So that means for us that when we look to the interpretation of these things in terms of our context, it's necessarily going to be general. It's necessarily going to be nebulous. And it would be bad exegesis to really look for strict fulfillment. You know, strict fulfillment. We'll, we'll touch on this when we get to the number 666, but that's a prime example. I mean, so in the last days, are, are we all actually going to be branded or tattooed with those actual numbers on our forehead or on our wrist? I think that that's a foolish reading. I think that that's a foolish reading to get that specific. We can entertain ideas of how that might be fulfilled in our own time in a general sort of way, or, but that's all the further we can go. That reading was known to the first century Christians, understood very well by them. So I say all these things by way of preface simply because we need to sober ourselves as we read this text. We need to realize that this text is written for first century Christians. You know, we, the same thing is true of the minor prophets, major prophets of the Old Testament, where we look and we, you know, we see these things fulfilled in their lifetimes. They point to a larger reality of the, of the first coming of Christ, of his incarnation. They point to a larger reality of his second coming and the culmination of the age. And in that same pattern, we can talk about revelation. But there's a great danger in getting too specific. So I watched, John says, when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. 
and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering to conquer. First things to note, the loosing of this rider, as with the other riders, is entirely under the control of Christ. So not only does, not only does Christ have perfect control as he opens the seal, but that perfect control is extended down to one of the creatures, one of the four living creatures, who himself orders this horseman, come. And the horseman's not able to come unless the angel with, with that authority given to him by Christ says come, and then he comes. So what do we gather from this right away? An all-important point. That it, as in the first century, so too now, when we see devastating things happening around us, and in this case, conquering, warfare, bloodshed, tyranny, when we see these things, we need to understand very, very well that these things are in the hand and the control of Jesus and his angels. They're perfectly under his control. This is, this is part of the peace that passes understanding. This is part of the depths of what it means to pray, thy will be done. While we might pray that this happen or that this other thing doesn't happen, we rest our souls that thy, that in thy will be done, in God's will being done. We rest our souls in the knowledge that even if it's evil and contrary to God, it's it's bound within his control, his limitations, and he's going to use it for his own good purposes. This can allow us to avoid a whole lot of hand-wringing and anxiety from the smallest things like our financial well-being to the larger things of the souls of those around us. All things are in God's hands. We can find perfect peace and rest in that knowledge. Again, we can, we can pray and wrestle our warfare is against the principalities and powers of darkness, not flesh and blood. So our warfare is meaningful and is effective, and, and we ought to engage. But we ought to engage always with this humility and with this antithesis to desperation, that all things are going exactly according to God's will. I didn't like that as a young man learning the catechism, but I've grown to love it, absolutely. It's actually one of my favorite things, if not my favorite thing, about the explanations to the Lord's Prayer. You know, God's name is, is going to be kept holy even without our prayers. God's kingdom is going to come even without our prayers. God's will is going to be done even without our prayers. Daily bread is going to be given even without our prayers. As a young, immature man, I was like, well, why pray? But now it's like, thanks be to God, and in this we rest. And in this we find inspiration to pray. God is for us. All things are in his hand. He promises to work all things for the good of those who love him. That's sufficient. So this uh, rider on the white horse, as terrifying as we might 
see this and, and other images, we need to remember that they are right on, inside the control of, of Jesus and his angel, the first of the four living creatures. Um, this, is a, this is a really good read on this text. And, you know, just, again, it grounds us and sobers us. This is from a, a little tiny commentary, but uh, a delightful one nonetheless. Um, Patrick Reardon. And I find this quite apropos, quite, quite sobering. So, um, talking about the four horsemen, but in particular this first horse, the white horse. These afflictions were visited on the world that John knew. In A.D. 62, the Roman legions were defeated by the Parthians to the east, and there were shortages of food, such as those recorded in the Acts of the Apostles and in Suetonius. So if you go into the Acts of the Apostles and you, I mean, you start seeing shortages of foods, famines, that's like all this collection for all these various places. Uh, in other words, these horsemen and what we're seeing here, like they have their first century reference. In addition, Reardon continues, there were earthquakes such as those in Asia Minor itself in AD 60, volcanic eruptions such as Vesuvius, civil war in Rome following the suicide of Nero in 68, and the war in Judea that culminated in the destruction of the temple in AD 70. All these events, John is telling us, were the subjects of the sacred scroll opened by the Lamb. That is to say, they are all the fulfillment of prophecies in the final times. Again, we are in the end times. We have been for 2,000 years. Now in these last days, God has spoken to us in his son. Look at, look at the way that, I mean, we're in the final day. You can use that theology. Look at just what Paul and the rest of the apostles have to say everywhere. We're in the last days. We have been. Um, the reason why things have gone on so long is simply because of this. God's mercy. He wants as many possible to repent. Come to the full knowledge of him. So, so get this on the white horse then, Reardon says. The first, the mounted archer on the white horse. You see how his rider, uh, we're at verse 2, his rider has a bow. The mounted archer on the white horse symbolizes invasion and war. The mounted archers contemporary with John were the Parthian warriors to the eastern border of the Roman Empire and on the far side of the Euphrates. So, look, very, very down-to-earth, um, orienting, historically orienting commentary here on how these things are fulfilled in very short order so that these first century Christians who received this prophecy then say, Amen, these things are true. And the subsequent centuries say, this book is true, let's retain it. Okay, that's the white horse then, conquering to conquer. Let me see if... Uh, Brighton, as is his way, often gives us um, some rather some rather tight. Yeah, the interpretation that best fits the description description of this first horseman and his role is that of a spiritual evil that causes military tyrannical dominance. That is, the rider of the white horse symbolizes and represents every form of tyranny, thus the crown. I think that this is what, you know, Reardon was focused on the bow here. Uh, Brighton is focused on the crown. Brighton is also focused on expanding this meaning in a general sense. So it symbolizes and represents every form of tyranny, which is won and acquired by power and force, usually warfare or forms of it. 
and which then by a dictatorial rule exploits, enslaves, dominates, and terrorizes. It can take the classical form of a triumphant militarism and the lust of conquest which makes great empires. Okay? What we're going to see, of course, is, and as we've seen thus far, the number four has to do with the earth. And so there's going to be four horsemen. In many respects, I mean, while these evils come from the opening of the seal and the command of the angel, in many respects, these are things that we inflict upon ourselves as those who are responsible for this earth. So we tyrannize and conquer for the sake of conquering one another. All right, that's, that's probably enough. Uh, verse 3, when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. Again, you see how all of this is driven by Jesus and by the living creature. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. Look at the overlap between conquering and to conquer back in verse 2 and here in verse uh, 4 to take peace from the earth that people should slay one another. I mean, there's really profound overlap here. A ton of overlap. So again, this is where getting too specific hurts rather than helps. I don't think that uh, Reardon has much to add historically here in regard to the, to the red horse. He simply says, whereas the first horseman carried a bow, the second carries a sword. War invariably leads to famine and starvation, and that leads us into the next. So this, like, like you see, these four horsemen actually work in league with one another. Maybe that's the best way to put it. The first one conquering in the bow, which, of course, the bow is usually shot first in battles um, while the armies are still away. Then the sword, and then from sword into famine, and famine into death. So, in other words, we should, we should probably see, it probably behooves us to see these four horsemen operating together and sort of in a successive way. In regard to this, uh, the second horseman, Brighton says this. What follows as the result of tyranny? Yeah, see, so Brighton sees the same connection. What follows as the result of tyranny, that would be the first horse, is bloodshed. That would be the second horse, bright red horse. Which in turn is followed and accompanied by scarcity of goods. That would be the black horse. Scarcity of goods and famine. And finally, the end result is the death and the grave. That's the white horse. So here you see the progressive or successive uh, understanding of these horsemen. And you see how the, the, these horsemen, I mean, I mean, these, these have been around, like, I mean, the idea of conquest and bloodshed and famine and death, they've been around, they've been around forever. All of these things are increased and heightened in the first century and progressively so as the world draws to its end. To where, of course, the 20th century was probably the, I mean, <laughs> and, and some would say we're on a path to do worse this century. Who knows? God preserve us. But the 20th century in terms of, I mean, think, just think of the world wars and the other wars. Gosh. Just war upon war. And the conquest and the bloodshed and the famine um, and, and the death. The 20th century makes all other centuries pale in comparison. And then this too, like relating to the martyrdom of the church. The 20th century, there was more martyrdoms. It's just 
commonly asserted and, and is no doubt true, especially when you look at the martyrdoms done under communist regimes. I mean, as our, as our country pushes towards socialism and communism, you don't have to be a rocket scientist. You don't have to have the gift of spiritual discernment to understand that this means open persecution, death to Christians. It's also why as we push to communism, there's, uh, and, and in that direction as a country, uh, there's this great clamor to, to ignore the Second Amendment and, um, and disarm the people so that these atrocities can happen. That's exactly the historical case in the, in the 20th century. That's what happens always. There's this idea of, well, why do we need this? Government protects us. Why do we need this? We're so civilized. Uh, so people give it all up, only then to be tyrannized. And the brunt of that tyranny in a, in a communistic uh, system is Christianity. Um, well, more could be said there, but let's not. Okay, so there's the, uh, there's the bright red. White, bright red, then verse 5, when he opened, again Christ, the Lamb, when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. Scales um, to us is like justice, but that's not really what's in view here. Scales um, were the agora, were the marketplace. The remnant of that is when you go to the fruit department of Stater Brothers and you've got scales there to weigh your, your limes for your margaritas or your bananas for your banana bread. So the scales here aren't so much judgment as it is talking about like economic impact, like the marketplace. Now, what the... Yeah, see, so the writer has a pair of scales in his hands, verse 6, and I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures. Well, in the midst of the four living creatures, that's a heavenly voice. So we don't know whose voice, that's a heavenly voice. In the midst of the four living creatures would tend to be uh, the one who sits upon the throne or the lamb. We don't know. It's just nondescript. But anyway, this proclamation comes from God. So look how intimately impact, I mean, it comes from heaven. So look how intimately connected. I mean, Jesus opens the seal. The four, the, one of the four living creatures says, come, he comes, and then the actual words are given from heaven, and they say this. A quart of wheat for a denarius. That's an extremely high price. So money is entirely devalued. Uh, there's such a scarce, or, or another way to look at it, there's such a scarcity of food. There's such a scarcity of food that it commands huge prices or money is devalued. A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. Again, this, these are just outrageous prices. That's what you see. And do not harm the oil and the wine. Those things which are common become precious. So in that, in that society, you know, in, at that time in that part of the world, oil and, wine were, oil and wine were everywhere. They were just quite common. It's just oil was used from everything, like cooking to soap and Wine was used for everyday drink. It was diluted with water, used medicinally, used to clean wounds, um, and then used, of course, to gladden the hearts of men. So uh, wine and oil everywhere, but now, and, and not considered uh, like, you know, choice or what one ought to worry about. And then look at the urgency. Do not harm the oil and the wine. Like these things that are common suddenly become precious. 
So you have scarcity or famine. Let's see if uh, Reardon on this point. Yeah, whereas the first horseman, the white one, carried a bow, the second, the red one, carries a sword. War invariably leads to famine and starvation, symbolized in the third horse, a black one, whose rider carries scales to measure the scant remaining food. Brighton, I've highlighted the part where he talks about the unidentified voice. Let's see what he has to say. Of the 13 times that John hears such an unidentified voice, it seems that most, if not all of the times, are voices of individual angels. Oh yeah, so there you go. In some of the instances, though, it may be the voice of God himself. Okay, well, whether, and then he goes on to say, well, whether God or an angel, it's spoken under, uh, it's being spoken for God and under his authority and to his glory. Okay, and then the fourth, the fourth horseman is death, and we don't, I mean, we don't need to belabor this. Although, although it is a pale horse in the ESV, which could also be considered green. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's, uh, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. Not necessarily hell here, not necessarily hell. Um, Hades can be understood to be the realm of the dead, like uh, can be understood like beast-like, like the grave swallowing people up. So not necessarily a reference to hell. Again, just nothing to get that carried away with, but um, death and Hades as one swallowing up humanity. And they were given, look at this, they were given authority. See, even death, even this final horseman, you know, along with the others, they're given authority. They don't have it of themselves. They're given authority by the Lamb, by the angels. They're given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence. That one's added in, but that often happens with a famine. Of course, we are going through pestilence and a famine of toilet paper. <laughs> and by wild beasts of the earth. So that's added in there too. So we see these deaths by wild animals, uh, and all the shark attacks and everything else. This isn't natural. This isn't natural. God created a world where uh, animals do not harm men, and so the fact that animals are harming men is a, is a sign that creation is turning against man, and is, uh, creation itself is crying out as witness against man. The atrocities that man commits against man are crying out to man, repent. And so you have this this fourfold heightening that ends up taking a fourth of the earth. You see all the fours, and the implication here is that really tragically, um, this is what man in his sinfulness does to himself. And this is a great sign of judgment and a great sign of, of the final things. So not only, I mean, certainly it has its fulfillment in the first and then in, a, in the first century, and then in a general sense, we can see it play itself out through human history. But again, the danger is getting too specific, and the danger is, is assigning, okay, well, since we went through the 20th, the 21st has to be it. I mean, it's just no indication of that in the text or in the scriptures. I mean, there is a sense, I think, amongst all of us that the world is getting older very quickly and that the world is decaying very quickly and that the powers of darkness are moving very speedily in our time. And the evil is increasing exponentially in our time. 
I don't think we have to be afraid of asserting that. I think that that's simply the case. You'd have to be blind to think otherwise. But again, that lacks the kind of specificity that poisons this text and poisons our thinking about these things. It's really just delusions of the devil to have us distracted, uh, focused on these little details, as opposed to seeing the big picture and seeing what's actually happening. All right, what we'll see then is an increase. It'll go from a fourth to a third, so things get worse progressively. But here these four, uh, these four horsemen that work in succession um, have, have a fourth of the earth. I mean, again, that's not, it's not to be taken literally. You don't have to crunch the numbers to see if that's true or if we're there yet or any nonsense like that. Um, but that's just generally speaking, um, it's, a, it's a huge loss. It's one in four. But it can get much worse, and it will get much worse. Okay, so those are the first four seals open, and I see that we're closing up with time here. So, um, because we're having our service on the patio still, I should probably get out there. Let's simply pause there for this week, and then uh, next week we'll get into uh, the fifth and sixth seals, the uh, interlude, so to speak, that happens between the sixth and the seventh, and the seventh seal, which actually opens into the first of the next succession of seven. The seventh seal opens the first trumpet. Just beautiful, beautiful literature and imagery there. Um, but let's get into that next week. The Lord be with you.